Hey, good morning, church family. This is my church home. I'm not employed here, but my name is Doug Balzer, and uh, I serve the Alliance Churches in Alberta out of our district office. And I'm the guy who gets to bring the Word of God to you because many, not all of your pastors, are in a very sexy place that you all wish you could be. Steinbeck, Manitoba. Yeah. Home of sausage and Mennonites. I could say more, but I won't. I could because I'm a former Mennonite myself. But um, why, why are they there? Your, your, district, uh, your district family, your district superintendent, people like me, we're encouraging all of our churches in three dimensions. Um, that we would be focused on making disciples. We really have no other mission. Making disciples who make disciples. You actually don't have a disciple unless they know how to make disciples themselves. Secondly, that this would be, would be done in the power of the Holy Spirit through renewal. And thirdly, that the church would be focused upon bringing the gospel to those who do not have it, including the least reached, some of which are in our region and some of which are around the world. And Steinbeck has a church called Southland Community Church, and many of our churches have gone there to learn really one dynamic. They don't do everything well, no church does. But this church does one thing well, and that is marrying the discipling of people from cradle to grave with identity in Christ and walking in the authority of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So some of your pastors are there this weekend, so we bless them and invite God to shape in them all that uh, he would have them do. But you get me. That feels good. I'm feeling the love. If you have a Bible, you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to talk today about God sees you for who you are not yet. He actually sees the you that is yet to be. And we're going to find this in God's Word. I'm going to read the first number of verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Hear, O church, the word of the Lord. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother, Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. With all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And now, Lord Jesus Christ, in your name, we lift you high in this place. And we confess that you are God over all, that you are the Alpha, that you are the Omega, and that your kingdom of light is pushing back the kingdom of darkness, for it is already defeated. And we welcome you, kingdom of Jesus, into every shadowy place in our souls this morning. We welcome your kingdom, Jesus, over every illness, over every sickness, over every soul that experiences loneliness, 
hopelessness, confusion, and despair. We invite the light of God to shine in our hearts that we might reflect the glory of our King of kings and our Lord of lords. And all God's people said, Amen. So again, I want to talk with you about this God who sees your life, not in the way that you see your life. If you're like most, you see your life, if you're like all, you see your life through the lens of our fallenness, our brokenness, our self-deception, our lies or the enemy's lies or lies that are spoken over us. But would you believe that God sees your life in a way that you cannot see? And his, view, his vantage point is perfect and is holy, and is restorative. So Sandy asked me, Pastor Sandy asked me a few months ago if I would preach on this Sunday, and I really didn't want to, because last night I said goodbye to our oldest son, Jason, who's off to New Zealand right now. He's on an airplane somewhere over the Pacific, and I've been a bit of an emotional wreck this week. I'm the crier in my marriage, and I, I really didn't want to really didn't want to stand here before you. So I I tried to find a bunch of ways to say no to Sandy, but he's kind of hard to say no to. And I eventually just sat before the Lord and I said, all right, you know, you're you're king overall. You know if I should be talking today or not. And I felt him say, yes, you should, and go back to that time in Scripture uh, two months prior where I came across what I call a throwaway verse in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. I call it a throwaway verse because it's those couple of verses in front of the letters, the epistles. So your New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you have a historical narrative written by Luke called Acts of the Holy Spirit. Then you have a bunch of letters. The fancy word is epistles. And most of these letters start in a, what I have termed, kind of a throwaway sense. Do you know what I mean? It says, uh, for to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people. I mean, how many of you, like me, have just sort of washed over those to get to the meat? Anyone? So let's look at a throwaway verse. I mean, you, you know I'm being sarcastic. There is no throwaway verse. And I felt that the Lord was saying, would you teach on this? On 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Let's look at the first phrase, to the church of God in Corinth. Corinth is not a textbook case of how the church ought to be. If you have a New International Version or a New Living Translation or something like that, uh, your Bible will have headings, maybe two or three headings within each chapter that talk about what the next package of verses is going to include. Some of you have that in your Bible. Now, those are not inspired words of God. Those are human-imposed category descriptions, as are the verses and chapters. I'm not throwing them under the bus, but I'm just simply saying this. If you look through the, the letters, the epistles from Paul to Corinth in the book of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, and even if you just review the headings, let alone read the text, you will find that Corinth is one messed up church. There were open divisions within the church. Legalism was rampant in some forms in the church. Adultery was accepted. They were not refuting Christians using uh, pagan temple prostitutes. There was open incest in the church. 
Need I say more? Corinthians, Corinth, the church in Corinth, was one messed up church. Which makes the next part of this throwaway verse rather confusing. Because Paul says to them, to those in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sure doesn't sound like they're sanctified, does it? There's a lot of messed upness going on. But Paul is correct that those who are in Christ, those who have believed in their heart that Jesus is Lord and confessed with their mouth that God raised them from the dead, they are saved. They are in Christ. But then the next phrase, if you can catch it, to those called to be his holy people. Sounds a little bit contradictory, does it not? If he says the church in Corinth is sanctified, what does sanctified mean? I mean, it's a, it's a, unless you're a Gen Xer like me who grew up with one of the best bands ever, Simple Minds, anyone out there? Anyone? Sanctify yourself, you know that great song? Yeah, you wouldn't know what the word sanctified means, but sanctified is simply that you are washed in Christ, that you are now declared holy in Christ, not because of what you did, but on the merits of Jesus. You are now set apart. In God's eyes, you are holy. But the Corinthians, he is saying, you are not yet living out your holiness. God sees you as holy, but you are not yet living out your holiness. God sees the Corinthians for what they are yet to be. And God views you through the lens of who you are yet to be. The scriptures say that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The world has not yet seen you fully as God sees you. If we will live into our holiness. So today, again, as we talk about God sees you who you are yet to be, I want to, it's not going to be so much of a sermon as Bible teaching. I want to give you a framework of how God views you, of how God views the world. Because his view is not static. He doesn't just look at you and say, that's who you are. He actually sees movement of who you were, who you are, and who he desires you to be. He sees that for the church in Corinth. You are sanctified, and yet you were called to be something. Would anybody be interested in being able to put on the lens through which God sees you? Well, let's do that, shall we? I'd like to... um, Where's my white marker? Here it is. I've got a toy and you don't. All of Scripture can be categorized in one of four categories. I'm going to give you four words. And different people might have different frameworks. Some of the words might be a little bit different. But what I'm going to show you is is really orthodox teaching. It's nothing new for me. But it will give you a framework of how God views everything. Well, in the very beginning, in the beginning, God created. So we start with creation. And at creation, God said everything was good. Did he not? He created the the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. It culminated with his masterpiece on day six when God said, let us which is the first reference to the plurality of the Godhead. Let us create man in our image. And he said it was good. And this is, you can read about it, in Genesis 
1 and 2. And how do you know I believe in a powerful God? Because I'm trusting that he can translate my font into something that is legible. We believe in a supernatural God. There's a theological term related to this, and it is simply ex nihilo. Does anyone know what ex nihilo means? Out of nothing or from nothing. When God created, and by the way, the New Testament tells us that it's Jesus who is the Word, and it is Jesus who created Part of the Godhead. He spoke, let there be light. It was there. Ex nihilo, from nothing. Jesus, God, did not take a lump of clay or a bucket of dirt and form everything that we see. He created everything out of that which is not. And then we know from Genesis chapter 3, what's, what happened next? Anyone? Fall. We've got a sharp group here. You're way better than the 9 a.m. service. That was pathetic. <laughs> Fall. Genesis chapter 3. The serpent tempts the first humans, Adam and Eve, and says, did God really say you are not to eat of any tree? Oh, no, he didn't say not to eat any, of any tree, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan said, no, 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 no. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. God's worried that if you eat it, you will know that you are like him. You, it says you will become like him, which is actually not only the first sin, but all other sinfulness falls on that. We want to be our own gods. We want to be in control. We want to be the maker of our own destiny. And I don't have to tell you what happened there. The curse comes, does it not? The curse upon the earth. And you just have to read the news or be a police officer or in any marketplace and you will see the brokenness of humanity, and it is replete. People who do not acknowledge the fall, many of you call secularists, they, even though they don't subscribe to creation, they kind of stop here, that everything is good, that, good, that humanity is intrinsically good, that all we need is more education, and humanity will step into its own. It's interesting, one of the most horrific society or the horrific acts any society has committed in the last hundred years would be through Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany was the most educated, sophisticated society on the planet when that happened. Education is not the answer. It's important, but it's not the answer. Did you know that there are more active over people in slavery today than all the years combined in history? We're not actually defeating slavery. It's just, under the, it's just under the carpet now, under the radar. I won't even get into that. But anyways, we have fall. We have creation. We have fall. We're, we're halfway there, and we're only three chapters into the Bible. Well, actually, you could put a lot of the, the Old Testament right here. You can put Moses in the law. God gave Moses the law, and what did the law tell us? The law told us that even on our own merit, we cannot be holy. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. And the people of Israel, they needed judges to come and, and look over them. And finally, they called out for a king that they could be like other nations. Give us a king. So God gives them King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And read those, read those books in your Old Testament, First, Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. And what does it just say again and again that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord? And some form of theocracy could not save humanity. 
The law, the prophets, from Genesis 3 to the end of Malachi is simply demonstrating one primary thing, that we in and of ourselves cannot rescue ourselves. We need a Savior. And so the next portion of Scripture is all about that God is on a rescue mission. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, which in and of itself is quite a statement, isn't it? A world that has rebelled against him. A world that says, I want to be like you. In fact, I want to be my own God. God still loves that world. He loves you. He sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the hinge point over all of history. This is the hinge point. My toy is not working. I want to make a nice big cross. Here we go. Now it's flowing. The cross of Jesus is the hinge point over all history. Now then, it doesn't end there. It ends with the restoration. I can't, uh, I'm not going to write the whole thing, just restore. And where do we find this? In the Revelation chapter 21 and 22. If any of this you find intriguing, you know, this afternoon, this coming week, read Genesis 1 through 3, and then Revelation 21 and 22 in one sitting. In one sitting. It's remarkable. Because Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it talks about God is present with his people. There is a river, there is a garden, there is goodness, there is openness, there is relationship. And then Genesis 3 brings on the curse. There is now sickness, there is death. There's toil, and Revelation 21 talks about now the presence of God has come. All things are restored. There is no sickness. There is no more death. The curse has been removed. That, friends, is the panoply of Scripture. For years, reading the Bible didn't make sense to me. It just seemed random. And it's kind of unintelligible unless you understand what you are reading. When you are reading your Old Testament, it is either about creation the depravity of humanity, or man's attempts to be rescued. All those obscure stories, those narratives, the obscure prophetic words, they are pointing to the fact that we need a rescuer in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's come back to identity, this God who sees who you are yet to be. Ex nihilo. For you to build your identity upon any created thing, you are actually building your identity on nothing. The created being, your hands, everything you see around you, it is not ultimate reality. It is not ultimate reality. Jesus created all of this out of nothing. Let me say it again. For you to build your identity upon something or someone other than Jesus Christ you are building your identity upon nothing. And God says, I see you through this trajectory, this kingdom trajectory. Now, Airdrie, rightfully, has a great motto. The motto is releasing the kingdom of heaven on earth. Should we apply the kingdom to this? See what it does? Okay, here it is. Thanks for asking. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God gives rulership 
to humanity. It's actually the, the first command is be fruitful and multiply, which is kind of interesting, which right now my wife's filter is in my mind saying, don't elaborate too much on that, Doug. Just let it go. Let it go. It's the first command to be fruitful and multiply. And then right after it is, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every animal that's on. God gives to us, to human beings, not only the capacity to rule, the responsibility to rule. So we're still on this line of where does the kingdom of God come, okay? It's in, it's in this line of thinking. So he gives us rulership, but then what happens? We give it away. We give it away to the enemy. To the enemy of our souls, we gave rulership over the earth. How do I know this? Look it up. In 1 John chapter 5, I think it's around verse 19 or so, it's one of the epistles, one of the letters from John, he says, the whole earth is under the control of the evil one. The whole earth is under the control of the evil one. If you would want to argue, yeah, that's not exactly what he meant. Well, you could go to the temptation of Jesus, which is recorded in several of the Gospels, and you know where Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and there in the wilderness, Satan, the serpent, tempted him in three ways. And one of the ways in which Satan tempted him was Satan brought him to a high place, and he said, I show you all the kingdoms, here's the word, operative word, I show you the kingdoms of the earth, and I will give them to you if you would just bow down before me. Was Satan lying about that? No, he wasn't. Jesus would not be deceived by a lying Satan, even in his humanity, his spirit-anointed humanity. Satan was not lying. He is the kingdom of the air. He is the prince of this world. We gave away the kingdom. It used to be a kingdom of man, humanity. We gave it to the enemy, and humanity, you and I, are lost under his power that is why we need a rescuer. And what does Jesus come and do? He purchases it back. He purchases the kingdom. Jesus, in his spirit-anointed humanity, not the first Adam that introduced a curse through disobedience, but as now the second Adam, not accessing his divine attributes, something to be grasped, but fully representing us as humanity, living in holiness, in obedience, living the life of perfection that we never could. Therefore, when he died, he became the perfect representative, the sacrificial lamb on behalf of me and you. By his blood, he purchases the kingdom back. He pays the penalty of the curse of sin and death. And on the third day, he rose again, thereby, thereby defeating death. Amen? Amen? The kingdom of darkness is defeated. And then Jesus says to his church, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Really, Jesus? That seems like a big gamble. Kind of didn't go so well the first time, you know? It's different now. It's different now. Because now that he has purchased back, he invites us to, here it is, to co-rule with him. Not in the kingdom of humanity, not in the kingdom of darkness, but now in the kingdom of light, 
the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, he says to every daughter and every son, I give you the keys to release the kingdom. So what we're talking about here is Airdrie Alliance Church, along with hundreds of thousands of other churches for the last 2,000 years, we are releasing the kingdom of heaven, which starts only at the cross and moves towards the restoration of all things. And it happens. It happens primarily in three ways. The proclamation of good news to people. There is a God who loves you. And there is a God who sees your life in ways that you cannot see it. And they are good. Secondly, through the healing of the sick and the setting free of those who are under this kingdom of darkness. This, friends, is the release of the kingdom of God. But you cannot access it unless you have God's trajectory. God is seeing things along a continuum. Whereas most of us, we get fixated on one of these, do we not? We get fixated on, on this. Oh, everything's good. It's sort of the denial, which is where much, much of our society is. Or maybe your identity, you get fixated on this, your fallenness, your brokenness. You may be in Christ. Spiritually, you may have crossed over, but your view of self has not yet entered the kingdom of God. Turn in your Bibles to um, Judges chapter 6. Fantastic story about this. You may have heard of him, a guy named Gideon. No, he didn't. Uh, he wasn't the CEO of the organization known as the Gideons. Um, but they got, I think they got their inspiration from Gideon. Again, no, this is the book of Judges. And if you want to get depressed, read the book of Judges. Because again and again and again, it says, as we read in verse 1 of Judges 6, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again and again and again. Which is interesting. It reveals something of the human heart. And that is to drift away from the purposes and plans of God. We see it in the book of Corinthians. It is real in my heart. It's real in yours as well. If we're not aware of it, we're at risk. So the Israelites, again and again, would do what is evil in the, in the sight of the Lord. And God would raise up different judges. Some of them were men, some of them were women. Powerful women leaders in the Old Testament. Deborah, others. And God raises up Gideon. Um, we're going to... Oh, so what happened here? The next verse, seven years, he gave the Israelites into the hands of the Midianites. So here's what was going on in, in the, within the people of Israel. Midianites and Amalekites, whenever it was time for harvest, these, these foreign nations with power, with military might, would blow through the land and they would steal the crops. They would burn the crops, destroy the crops, steal the crops. If there were any livestock, they would steal the livestock. Now, there was no Costco to go to. You couldn't just go to Costco and get your food. You know, and meat didn't come under, you know, cellophane wrap. It actually came from the animal in your backyard. These were how people survived. It was life and death. And so the whole country was in hiding. The country wouldn't want um, foreigners passing through to know they had any resources because they were like locusts eating up the land. And so let's pick it up here in verse 13. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah. Did you know Oprah was in the Bible? That has nothing to do with my talk. In Oprah that belonged to Joash, 
the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. Now, I don't think we have many threshing experts here. Might have some farmers who operate a combine, and we may or may not have people who are experts in pressing grapes. But it's, it makes no sense that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. How, do you th- how would you thresh wheat up until the modern age of machinery? You would do so in a place that's exposed to the wind. And you would rub somehow, with maybe with tools or whatever, you'd want to rub the grain so the, the um, elements, the, the chaff on the grain would break apart from the seed, and then they would literally throw it up in the air, as high as you can, into the wind, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and what comes down? Chaffless wheat. Now, a wine press is completely different. A wine press is in a low spot. A wine press is, is outside of the wind. It's protected because you don't want things blowing in. A wine press has walls around it because you're actually treading down. Has anyone ever treaded grapes before? You have? Oh, we got to talk. I've never done that, but that sounds really interesting. Uh, apparently, you make sure there's no toe jam in between your toes. And, and then, uh, yeah, sorry. Don't visualize that. Um, and then you, tr- you tread this, and it's in a protected area. You wouldn't. You wouldn't thresh wheat in the wine press unless you were fearful, lacking no courage, having no boldness, in hiding. Here's where this story gets really interesting. An angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and says to Gideon, this is almost, it's almost comical, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Can you just picture it? This guy who's scared beyond belief. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I wonder if Gideon's looking around. Is there somebody else here? Uh, just yesterday I was reading Luke chapter 1, story of Mary, angel Gabriel appearing to Mary. You know what Gabriel says to Mary? You who are most highly favored, the Lord is with you. See, when the Lord is with you, it changes all the dynamics. Even though Gideon puts up a little bit of a fight, and then in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? Gideon refutes, saying, I am the smallest tribe in the weak clan of Manasseh, and yet you're choosing me. Go in the strength you have. God simply asks us for obedience. And then again in verse 16, the Lord answers, I will be with you. You will strike down the Midianites. Here's what I'm drawing out of the story. God saw someone who was fearful. No boldness, no courage. And God saw Gideon for who he was yet to be. And who he was yet to be has to do with whose kingdom you live under. God does not see your life through one of these categories. He sees it as a moving trajectory. Do you catch the difference? But if your identity is built upon something that is created, your identity is not based on the ultimate reality, which is only Jesus Christ. So we love Gideon. We love um, the perspective that he provides. The question I want to ask you, what kingdom do you live under? What kingdom do you live under? There may be people here this morning who have not crossed over spiritually from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And the Bible says that anybody can do this. 
if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that is a reality that any one of us can engage in if we haven't. But in a room this size, most of us, in all likelihood, are more like the church of Corinth, where there is, yes, the reality that you are sanctified, you are in Christ, but yet God is on this side of the trajectory, beckoning you to come. I have sanctified you. Now I call you to be holy. Let me read it again. To the church of God in Airdrie, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people. We want to be a people that are about releasing the kingdom of heaven on earth. To participate in that reality is to stand on this side of the cross. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Here's the bottom line. You cannot release elements of the kingdom to others, to the life, the world around you, unless you have brought those very same places under the lordship of Christ. Think of areas of your life. Have they all come under the lordship of Jesus? People throughout the ages have compared the soul of a human in the church. Uh, people throughout the ages in the church have compared the soul of people like a, like a house with many rooms. Are there rooms in your life that are not yet in the kingdom of God. How do we bring these places into the kingdom of God? Well, they all come through the cross of Jesus. Every one of them. They come through the cross of Jesus with confession, with surrender. Pastor Ben read that earlier, that we leave all of these things, mothers, fathers, fields, and then we walk in obedience. Here's where it's real for me, okay? Uh, when our youngest son turned um, 16 a number of months ago, uh, I sold him my 2005 Honda Accord with 320,000 kilometers on it. And I gave him a good deal, but I, he had to pay for some of it. it was, it's good for him to learn how to earn and save, and he's doing a good job on that. But then I needed a, a different car. And there was a certain model that I wanted, so I, I was praying that God would provide it for me. You know, bring your wants to him. And one day in um, silent prayer, I, I felt like the Lord said this, why should I give that to you if you will only use it as a curse to others? Now here's the application. I am currently on a journey of moving my driving under the kingdom of God. <laughs> that actually wasn't a joke. But level of guilt, or level, level of laughter, level of guilt, so I'm not the only one out there. I don't flip people the bird. Not, not in the way they can see it anyways, you know. My heart is like that too often. When people cut in front or they race to the front of the line and then squeeze in. And, and the Lord said, why, why would I want you to have a car if you're not going to use it to release the kingdom to those around me? It was like, ouch. So I'm still working on this one. This is deep sanctification for Balzer. I'm a type A some of you don't know what type A is. Some of you do. So I'm learning to be gracious. I'm learning to release the kingdom of heaven to people who drive around me, even though they'll never know my motivation. 
What rooms in your life need to come under the kingdom of God? Unless they come under his lordship, you cannot give to other people. People who operate in physical healing are people who have received the life of Christ even in their mortal ways. People who can pray the peace of God upon others are people who walk in peace. People who can impart godly truth from the word with authority with other people are people who have submitted themselves to truth. Freely you have given, freely you have received. If you have not freely received, you cannot give. And so to be a church that releases the kingdom of God is to be a people who 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, are not only sanctified in Christ, but we are living out our holiness. And yes, it'll take a, one day longer than a lifetime to get there. But God is gracious with us. So how do we sustain this beyond Sunday morning for 90 minutes? Because, you know, we come here, and that's good, but then we go back to our lives for uh, Monday through Saturday. I want to argue that it rises and falls on a word called liturgy. On liturgy. Now, some of you are here maybe because you came from a church background that could be described as highly liturgical. I would suggest to you that every church is liturgical. Liturgy means the work of the people. What do the people of God do when they come together? Airdrie Alliance has a liturgy. Every church does. We come, we sing, we invite the presence of God to um, move amongst us. We, we open the word of God. We're in community, etc., etc. And it's good. It's good. But if you are someone who comes every week and you are expecting the 90 minutes this church gathering provides for you to carry you for the rest of the week, the Bible would say you are spiritually, uh, a spiritual infant. It's true. Paul says, stop drinking the milk and move on to the meat. So my question is, if you want to be a person who releases the kingdom, what liturgy, what habits of grace do you need so that you can be walking in the kingdom Monday through Saturday? Jesus uses the example of the vine and the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. Most of us are here because we want that vine to grow bigger, correct? If you know, if you know anything about vines, they do not grow upward on their own. They need a scaffolding system. They need lattice. Liturgy, what you do throughout the week, is the lattice by which your identity can grow in Christ. Here's the thing. Your life already has a liturgy. You don't even know it. If every time you feel a little bit, uh, I'm not feeling too good about myself, you want to go shopping to a mall or on your iPad, just kind of flicking through stuff, you are forming your identity. James K.A. Smith writes a book, You Are What You Love. And the habits that we engage in form us. The idea is worship isn't just worshiping God. What we worship forms us. It becomes our liturgy. So when you feel down, if you reach for some method of shopping, that is your liturgy. And your identity is built on nothing. I'm not just going to pick on the shoppers. If you, when you're feeling down, you want to escape. You could escape by, um, you're bored, I'm going to just pull up my phone and do whatever. 
got to see a movie, I need to be entertained. You're actually forming your identity, not as a bearer of Christ, but as one who needs to be entertained. Instead of, I am Doug, a child of the living king, I'm Doug, someone who needs distraction and to be entertained. Could be through video games, could be you know, through anything. I could go on and on here. Is there anything wrong with video games? No. Is there anything wrong with shopping? No. Is there anything wrong with these things? No. But how do you form yourself? Increasingly, I'm learning that in addition to calling out to God for his presence, yes, we need to do that, absolutely. But we also need scaffolding in our lives. The opening of the word Monday through Sunday. Spending time with him. And actually following in the footsteps of ancient saints who have engaged in liturgy. Every morning when I open the word, I am no longer just reading. For me, I'm actually, first of all, praying the Lord's Prayer and inviting the Spirit to speak to me. Increasingly throughout my days, I'm engaged in liturgy. It can be while I'm driving. It can just be in a moment alone at work, whatever. But liturgy such as praying Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For his rod and staff, they comfort me. In the presence of my enemies, he prepares a table before me. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That can be liturgy. Some of us think liturgy is dry and stuffy. Did that feel like dryness or stuffiness? No, I could see many smiles on faces when I did that. What kind of scaffolding do you need in your life? So that you can see yourself as God sees you. I tell you, when I pray through the Lord's Prayer, when I pray through Psalm 23, I'm reminded of who he is, who I am, and how he invites me to co-rule with him to release the goodness of God to those around me. Would you stand? For centuries, um, the church has developed a whole variety of liturgy, ways of, ways of accessing God. One of them is called St. Patrick's Breastplate. St. Patrick's Breastplate. I'm going to pray it over you. If this is meaningful to you, you can Google it. Once again, St. Patrick's Breastplate. This is a liturgy in my life. I pray it over my, myself, my wife, my sons, my dog, our possessions, and our comings and goings every day. Now in Jesus' name, Christ above you, Christ beneath you, Christ before you, Christ behind you, Christ within you. 
Christ in every mind that thinks of you. Christ in every eye that sees you. Christ in every ear that hears you. Christ upon every mouth that speaks of you. Christ when I sit. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I rise. And now, friends, may I gift you with a moment of silence for you to hear what the Lord has for you. And now let us pray as our Lord taught us to pray. When we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Peace. God bless you.